Well, God bless. All right, let's, uh, let's pray and we'll uh, open up the word and see what else happened on day six. We hit part one last week and we'll hit part two today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you'd open to our hearts and our minds the truth of your word. I pray that you would help us to understand what it is you want us to learn and that we would see a little more <coughs> of your face. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to uh, not only anoint those that are listening to understand, but anoint me as I speak. I pray that I would not speak words that are untrue. I pray that you would keep me from that, that you'd put a guard over my mouth, and that you would allow me only to speak the words that are true. Lord God, I pray that you would just uh, let your word go forth unhindered this morning. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 1. Last time we spoke of the dominion or the stewardship that God has granted to mankind. A very great honor, a very important trust has been given to mankind as the stewards of creation. As well as being the final creation of God. The, well, the final creation of God in the creation week, that is, uh, is mankind. And it is very, very important to understand how mankind got our beginnings and what significant that has for us today. What did God design us to be at first and how can we apply that now? Mankind is, in a very real sense, the crowning achievement of creation the crown of creation. If you'd like a title of the message today, that is it, the crown of creation. Let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, and we'll read through to the end of the chapter. I think today I'd like to have a stand in honor of God's word. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat, and to every beast of the earth, and to every fowl of the air, and to every living thing that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I have given every green herb for meat. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And evening and the morning were the sixth day. Amen. You may be seated. So the end of the sixth day has come. And we spoke last week about how God made the animals and, and how those animals are created and designed to bring God glory and reflect. Really, we only scratched the surface of the way those animals can bring glory to their creator and the incredible um, creativity and and designing 
that goes into their creation. But we talked also about how the first mention of the Trinity comes up in this passage, in the verses previous to what we've just read, and how God decided to make man in his image. And I'd like to talk a little more in depth today about what it means to be created in the image of God. First of all, in what ways are we like God? That's what these word, what the word image means. He said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. What does that mean? To be like God, to be in his image. The most significant way that we are like God, the most significant way in which we are in his image, is that we have three parts to ourselves. He is a tripartite being. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit connected. Three distinct parts of a single whole. It's, it's just a, an amazing mystery, but they're all separate, but they're all connected at the same time. One person, three in one. You and I are also three in one. We have a body, a physical body that you can see and touch and feel. We have a soul, which is our mind, our will, and our emotions. And we have a spirit, a spirit, our spirit is the thing by which we are able to communicate with God and to connect to the spiritual world in general. We can sense spiritual forces in the world. Even if they're not godly forces, we can still sense them. That's because we have a spirit. We have three distinct parts of us, and yet they are all connected in one single individual. We are tripartite in our being. And that is the most significant way that we are like God. All humans, all human beings have this image and are therefore worthy of respect. If only for that reason, they are in the image of God. All humans have it. The scripture also says, I just, I didn't do an exhaustive search but I, thought, I kind of thought it through, and I, I believe the scripture would say that God has hands. It says this specifically. God has hands. He has eyes, feet, arms, a mouth, and ears, among, I'm sure, many other things. But I, I could remember specific scriptures that spoke of those specific things. And so do we. We have arms and hands and feet. And it's not that that God told us about his feet and his eyes and his arms and hands in order to help us understand the things that he's doing. He literally does have ears and eyes and feet. And in fact, Jesus Christ is the personification of the Godhead. And Jesus Christ has a physical body that looks just like you and me. So in that sense, we are also in the image of God in, the, in that physical sense. We are created in his image. Now, does that mean that if you don't have feet, that you're not in God's image? Or if you were born without eyes or without hands, that somehow you're not fully in God's image? No, that's not what that means. That's just another part of a whole big picture. But the, again, going back to the most significant way we are like God is that we have three parts to ourselves. And so you can have a body, a soul, and a spirit, even if you don't have legs or arms or eyes or ears or any of that stuff. You still have 
those three parts. What meaning do we find in the fact that we are all created in the image of God? What meaning is found in this truth? All mankind are in God's image, and that includes every race, every shade of color, every country, every age, every background, every level of intelligence, and every gender. Well, there's only two genders, but, you know. No matter what gender you are, no matter what background you have, no matter what country you were born in, no matter what color your skin might be, no matter any of those things, all mankind is created in the image of God. Every single one. And we are varied, as varied as the sands are upon the sea, is mankind's variance. There's all kinds of different people in the world. <laughs> I mean, everything from those short little pygmy tribes in Africa to the gigantic Norwegians who tend to be on the side. Even to the point of there were at one time in this, in this earth Giants, literally giants. I believe when the Israelites were afraid of the Amalekites, I think they were Amalekites or the Anakim, they were afraid because they were really very big people, gigantic people. And when they said, we are as grasshoppers in their sight, that was an exaggeration. They weren't literally, you know, all the way up touching the tops of the trees probably, but they were... 9, 10, 12 footers. Imagine seeing a 12 foot man walking down the street. Proportional, not just 12 feet tall, you know, really slender, you know, like Larry Bird is really tall and slender. <laughs> but with the girth to match his 12 foot height, that would be a pretty fearful opponent. Those people actually walked in the world at one point. That's, a, that's another discussion for another day. But I believe that they really did. Goliath is an example of one of those people that was left, even in David's day. But we have a huge variety of human beings in the world even today. And yet every single one is in the image of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that all types of prejudice or racism are wrong. It prohibits any type of well, this race is better than this race. Well, this race might be better at this, than this race at certain things, but that's only because they're genetically um, selected, not selected, but the, their genetics are more suited to a particular thing. For instance, people in Asia, in Asia you have a lot of uh, uh, sandstorms and, and, and things like that, and, and so people that have slinted eyes, and this is actually genetically researched, have a better ability to handle that type of environment. And over time, the people that had the slitted eyes were able to survive in that area better. Not survive exactly, but they, it wasn't as hard on them as it was on others. And so you, you, you section off this one genetic trait, and eventually all those people begin to develop that genetic trait. Or people with more, uh, uh, is it melatonin? Is that the right word? that makes your skin darker complected, the more you have, the darker you are. If you have more melatonin in your skin, you can handle heat a lot better, which is why people that have darker skin have tended to live in African countries. And they're able to handle the heat of Africa 
easier than those with a genetic predisposition to a lighter color of skin. Anyway, yes, there are differences, and recognizing those differences is not wrong. But to say that, as they were saying in the time of World War II in Nazi Germany, they were saying that the Aryan race is a superior race to the Negro race, is what they called it at the time. That race was inferior to the Aryan. The Jewish race had inferior genetics to the Aryans, and the Aryans were the next step in evolution. That's false. That's unbiblical. Every person, no matter how much, no matter what kind of genetics they have, are all in the image of God and therefore worthy of respect for that reason alone. And here we have the foundation of this teaching. Right here at the very beginning, God says, I will make man in our image. In the image of God created he man, mankind. And that is important. It's important in this day and time. I have run into people <laughs> in, in Virginia and Georgia. I've lived in the deep south and I've ran into some well, one guy in particular, he was just way over the top, just incredibly racist. <laughs> he wouldn't even take a drink from a black person that would hand him a drink. He would take it and throw it in the trash immediately. Just, and and he, would, he would cuss out our black employees just because they were standing there. I mean, just incredibly bad. But there are other more subtle forms of racism that exist even still today. And we need to be able to say, wait a minute, all human beings are in the image of God and we are prohibited from looking down upon any other race because of their genetics. Any other, any other person, a person with Down syndrome is no less worthy of life than I am. A person with cerebral palsy is not a lesser of a human being. They're just different. They have maybe special obstacles, but they are still in the image of God in heaven. And we should look upon them as such. Also, he tells us that men and women are in the image of God. Look there in verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. God created men and women in the image of God. Again, because women as well are a tripartite being, we are in the image of God together. In the very beginning, men and women were created as equals. Now, they weren't created as the same exactly. They were still different. It says, you'll, we'll find later on in Genesis 2, verse 18, that women were created to fulfill the role of helper. Adam needed a helper. And men, if you, if you are honest with yourself, you will say, you need a helper. Uh, most men need a helper. And if it's not their wife, it's, it's their mother. And if it's not their mother, it's their sister. Uh, most men have a strong woman behind them. Almost every man, you know, mighty man that I've ever known of, you can trace a strong woman helping him out because we need it. And God knew we needed it right at the beginning. He said, wait a minute, this guy needs a helper. But there's not a helper suited for Adam, so God made one. He made a helper suited to Adam, and that's what women were created for. 
for the role of helper. Men were created for the role of leadership, but neither role is inferior to the other. They are not the same, but they are different. They are equal, but different. Men and women created at the very beginning in the image of God. Both have equal value before God. Eve was made on the same day as Adam was made. It says male and female created he them. And then it says the evening and the morning were the sixth day later on. Now, Genesis 2, you, uh, for a long time I didn't quite get this part. Genesis 2 is written as an expansion, not the whole chapter, but part the part that's talking about Adam naming the animals and Eve being created and being brought to Adam. That is an expansion of what occurred on day 6. That is sort of more detail about what happened on day 6. And you say, how in the world could Adam have named all the animals in one day? Well, if you do the math, it's possible. It's partly because he was naming all the different kinds. At that point, we didn't have 150 different dog species. We had one dog kind. We had one cat kind. And there was not the great variety of species that we see today. It was a little bit different. So he could have done it in a day. It's really, it's not that hard. He could have done it in a few hours. Named all the animals, all the animal kinds. Would have left plenty of time for God to say, okay, none of these are good enough. Go to sleep, Adam. Let's get you, let's get you a whoa, man. You know why he called a woman? Because he looked at her and said, whoa, man. He, he, he liked her. Because she was a beautiful creature. And she is. It's really, she's the last thing God made. If you, if, you, if you play it out, woman is the very last thing. But God made men and women in the image of God. Made them on the same day with the same value. Well, let's go on. We've talked about the image of God and His implications for us today. Let's look at verse 28 and talk about the first blessing. Well, not the first blessing, because the first blessing was given to whom? I should have put this in the candy part. Who received the first blessing? Somebody knows. The birds and the fish. That's right. God blessed the birds and the fish first. I, I think we already got the answer, Elisha. Yeah, we did. Um, but this is the first blessing given to mankind. And it's similar. But let's look at it. Verse 28. Uh, he first says, be fruitful and multiply. This first blessing, this first, this first part of the blessing given to mankind is a key element for completing the rest of the blessing. The rest of the blessing is sort of dependent upon this part. To bear fruit, what does that mean? I looked at the Hebrew words and they mean basically what they were translated as here in this version. To be fruitful is the Hebrew word for fruit, to bear fruit. What does that mean for us? Well, I would say it means to be successful. Very often people will apply be fruitful as meaning to have children. Well, that can be applicable there. You can apply it in that sense. But a person can be fruitful without having children. You don't have to have children to be fruitful in your life. So what does fruitfulness mean? Well, if a plant or a tree or something brings forth the fruit it was designed to bring, it has been successful. 
it has successfully completed its task. So to be fruitful means to be successful. To seek success is something that God intends for us to do. God says, be fruitful. Bring forth your fruit. But we must remember how to measure success. Seeking success is good, but how does God measure what is success? First of all, let me mention that success is not measured by possessions, positions, or people. It's not measured by your possessions, how many things you have, how big your house is, or how many cars you drive, or how fancy a car you drive or don't drive. A lot of people measure success that way, and that's not how we measure it. A lot of people would measure success by, you know, I have a house and a picket fence and a wife and three kids and a dog and uh, a, a decent car. I just have, okay, comfort. That's successfulness. No, it's not. That's not the way God measures what success is. Is it measured by positions or power, you might say? Positions that I have. Uh, is the President of the United States the most successful person ever? Well, no. I would say that there is no president that is successful just because he became the president. Achieving a position does not mean you are successful. Becoming, you know, executive VP of awesomeness, whatever title you can imagine. I guess Greg already has that title secured. So coolness, you know, maybe is still available. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Proves my point, really. He sealed up the executive VP of awesomeness, and yet he's still not successful. He's not the vice president. He's the CEO of awesomeness. But okay, let's, let's say you become the CEO of your own company. Let's say Steve Jobs was one of the most successful, worldly speaking, entrepreneurs. He was an entrepreneur who started a multi-billion dollar company that shattered all kinds of records and changed all kinds of paradigms, and he was a genius, brilliant guy. Even if his personality was perhaps abrasive at times, he was a brilliant person. And in the business world, you would, you would look, many do still look at Steve Jobs as the picture of success and how to become successful, or Bill Gates, or some other business leader. Even Donald Trump, some would look at and say he's incredibly successful. Because why? Because he's got a position. But those positions don't bring success in God's economy. That's not how God measures it. What about people? Some people would say, well, if you've got plenty of friends, well, then you're successful. Well, I would say this one is a lot closer to being right, but it's not really fully there. You can have plenty of friends and have people love you, love you, love you, but that's not truly success. Not in God's eyes. It gets a lot closer because it's based upon relationships. People don't get to the end of their life and say, boy, I sure wish I had had a few more meetings. Or, boy, I sure wish I had put in a few more hours at the office. I really wish, I regret not having put in enough hours at the office. No. When they get to the end of their life, they say, boy, I regret not spending more time with my family. I regret not building relationships with my friends. I regret 
missing out on life because I was not living with my friends and family. They regret that, but, but they still miss it. Success is not based in who we know or the friendships we have, but it is based in relationship. Success is measured by a relationship, a single relationship, the one that we have with our Father in heaven. When I have a relationship with Him, and that relationship is growing and nurturing and fulfilling me, that is success in God's economy. Success is not measured by possessions, positions, or people. Success is measured by fulfilling our God-given purpose. Our God-given purpose. When we fulfill that purpose, then we find real success in life. And what is that purpose, friends? The God-given purpose for mankind is to glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. That is the purpose of mankind. To bring Him glory and to enjoy the relationship that we have with Him. Our dogs and our cats and our cattle and all the animals in the world cannot have a relationship with God in heaven the way we do because they don't have a spirit. They don't have one. We do. We connect to the Father in heaven and have a relationship with Him because He designed us to do it that way. He designed us for that relationship. To bring Him glory and enjoy Him forever is the purpose of mankind. And when we fulfill that purpose, we are truly fruitful. What about multiplication? Being fruitful is to be successful. To multiply is to have children. To multiply yourselves means increase yourselves. Have babies. That's what God was telling Adam and Eve. Be fruitful and multiply. It means literally have plenty of children. Whether it's one child or 20. When we get to the end of our life, we want our quiver full. And if that means you only got one, fine. You only got three, fine. If the quiver's full, that's the point. Look at Psalm 127. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of the arrows God wants him to have. Don't say, no thanks God, I only want three arrows. Oh, what would I do with four arrows? You might kill a fourth enemy. Oh, wait a minute. I don't think I can handle six arrows, God. Those people that have six arrows, they're, well, they're kind of almost crazy. Yeah, but they're killing more than you are. You got that arrow? Don't tell God, I only want this many. That's like the, the king in the Bible and Elisha went to him and Elisha was sick in bed and the king said, Oh, hey, oh, prophet Elisha, what will we do without you? And the prophet said, Take three arrows and knock them on the ground. And he took them. He took the arrow. Or maybe it was one arrow. But he hit it three times on the ground and stopped. And the prophet said, he got mad at him. And Elisha the prophet said, why did you stop at three? You should have kept going. You should have you said, 
You should have just kept on going, but because you only did three, well, you're only uh, uh, conquer your enemies three different times. Now shoot the arrow out the window. And anyway, there's more of the picture there. But he stopped too soon. And friends, one of the great tragedies of Western civilization is that we look at children as a burden instead of a blessing. And we look down upon people. And I'm not saying necessarily people in this room, but I'm saying as a whole, as a society, our mindset is children are, are a weight. They're a burden that hinders you from really doing everything that you'd want to do. And we don't see them as God sees them. He says they are a blessing, a reward. That's how God describes children. He said, multiply. He said, do, do a bunch. And again, I'm not, I'm not speaking negatively about people that can only have one or two. They're limited, but their quiver's full. That's the point. It's not that, oh, you're less of a Christian because you only have four kids and, you know, oh, that, that guy over there, he had eight or nine. Wow, he must really love God. He must really be blessed. No, wait a second. That's wrong. The, the point is to fill your quiver so that you could kill as many of the enemy as God wants you to. God has a plan for your life. He has a plan for the arrows he gives you. Fill the quiver. That is God's point. Perhaps one of the reasons that Europe is being overrun by Muslims. Now see, in, in Western civilization, we see children as a burden. But in many other civilizations around the world, they don't see children as a burden. They see children as the future. And part of the reason Europe is being overrun by Muslims and by the Muslim uh, culture is because the Muslims are outbirthing everyone. The European birth rate is incredibly low. I think it's negative one. I don't think it's even one child for every death. They're slowly dying out. But the Muslims are, I mean, it's like three or four to one. Their birth rate is much higher, so just give it enough time, they're just going to take over everything. And that's happening here. Because our birth rate is incredibly low. But other people who see children not as a burden, but as their chance to have an impact upon the future, are outbirthing us. Friends, we need Christians to have lots of children. That's just the plain old, blunt, honest truth of it. We need godly Christian parents to have as many children as they can and teach them to be godly Christian parents who have as many children as they can because that is the way. See, friends, a lot of times we say amongst ourselves, don't we? I'm sure you've thought this in your own heart like I have. I want to have an impact on the future. I want to make a difference for the future. I want one day people to look back and say, Jared Hinton had such a powerful influence upon our life today. Uh, you know, we, we joked around at, around the campfire. We said, if, if they taught about you in the history books, and in the future, every history book had your name and your story in it, what would you want to be famous for? Well, we talked about, you know, what it would be, you know, be famous for this, that, you know, invented, whatever. Something incredible that I would want people to remember me for. I would want to be in every history book for this. I want to have, I want to make a difference now that will have repercussions for eternity. 
that will, that will make a difference for the future. If I could get in a time machine and go to the future, I'd want to know what I need to do now to influence the future. Friends, the best way to influence the future is to influence children and build them into the leaders, the builders, the teachers, and the parents of the future. This is a very true saying. The society of tomorrow sleeps in your cradle today. The society of tomorrow, the civilization of a hundred years from now, is asleep in your cradle, is walking down your street, is going to school down your street, comes over and goes fishing with you on the weekends, might be sitting next to you right now, that is the civilization of tomorrow. Those are the people that will shape the world tomorrow. The coming years will be shaped by the children that we are shaping now. And I don't mean just the children you've given birth to. Every single one of you in this room has an impact and an influence on some little child somewhere. And that is an incredibly powerful responsibility. And we should be looking at children the way God sees them, not as the burden that our culture tells us they are. Yeah, they're a lot of work, but they're worth every second of it. They're worth it. We need to remember that God said from the very beginning, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply, have children. That's what he told them right at the beginning. Then what did he say? He said, replenish the earth. Let's go back to that uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. He said, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now, this is really hard to do if you're not having babies. Just FYI. It's hard to be fruitful. It's hard to replenish the earth if you're not being fruitful and multiplying. Now, some people teach that this uh, phrase here proves that the earth was created and then destroyed between Genesis 1, verse 1, and verse 2. It's called the gap theory. We talked about it many weeks ago. But to refresh your memory, they feel, they feel like the evidences of long ages were like God created uh, an entire race of civilization of people and, and then he flooded them out. And that's why the world was covered with water in Genesis 2. Well, we've talked about how that's false, but some people would point to this phrase and say, well, that means that they need to replenish because it was planished at one point, now it's been destroyed, now replenish the earth again is what God is saying to them. The Hebrew does not actually support that viewpoint. Replenish in Hebrew is the word male, and it means to be full of. It doesn't mean to make full again. It means to be full of. It's translated 195 times in the Old Testament as fill, uh, filled, or full. And in fact, a couple other translations, including the New King James, says, <clears throat> uh, uh, it says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So the replenish word is an Old English word and it meant, if you look at the Old English Dictionary, uh, the Oxford English Dictionary, excuse me, it meant to make full, 
fill, stock with, inhabit. So God was saying, stock the earth. <laughs> uh, like you'd stock a lake with fish. I think our, our pond out here has been stocked with fish. Uh, God was saying, fill the earth. That's what he meant. Modern example um, of a word like replenish would be research. Research doesn't mean search again. It means to completely search. To search completely. Relax means to lax. It doesn't mean, doesn't mean lax again. It means lax. Relax is what the word means. Uh, relax also means to fish. I think it's there in the dictionary somewhere. <laughs> to fish. Uh, perhaps. So God is telling them, fill the earth. You know why we don't have a problem with overpopulation in the world? Because before death ever came, God wanted mankind to fill the earth up. And now we got people that are dying. So they're getting out of the way. So we got plenty of room. I mean, just, just being honest. Before death came, God said, fill the earth up. So God intended for them to not die and just fill the earth completely up with people and birds and animals. And then, I don't know. I don't know how things would have worked. But that's why I am not at all worried about overpopulation. And that's what you can tell your friends when they say, the world is overcrowding. You can say, no, it's not. You can fit the entire population of the world in the state of Florida. And everybody you have like an acre or, I mean, something like that. It's incredible. Maybe not an acre, but you could fit them. Let's say Florida, Georgia, and South Carolina. Everybody gets an acre. We don't have an overcrowding problem, and this proves it. What did he next say? He said, subdue it. <coughs> Excuse me. Subdue it. Kabash is the Hebrew word, and it means to tread down. It can be translated subject, force, keep under, or conquer. Subdue the earth. Conquer it. Well, why would you want to conquer it? What are you talking about? Well, the best way I can understand it was, have you ever climbed up a mountain? I know some of my sisters recently, not too long ago, went to Old Rag, climbed up Old Rag. And you know, you get to the top and you see and you've accomplished and you've achieved and you feel this real sense of, of, of accomplishment and power. And I have done it. You know, here I am at the top. And, you know, I've climbed the top of old rag, you know, or whatever mountain it is you climbed. Here I am at the top of Everest. It's a feeling of conquering, a feeling of achievement, of power. And God wanted us to do that in the earth, to, to subdue the earth, to keep it under the control of mankind. You know, if you have a garden, you have to tend the garden. And it's not just talking about pulling weeds. It's not just part of the curse. Uh, God told Adam that by the sweat of your brow you bring forth fruit from the earth. That was part of the curse. It became work and hard. But before that, tending the garden would have been pleasant. And you would have just simply, okay, I want to plant this right here. And you would plant it and you would tend it and you would make it grow. And you would control and rule and subdue the garden. And you would have power over it. And I think that's what God was trying to tell them. Subdue the earth. Take care of it. Keep it under control. Tread down. What about have dominion? And it's a different Hebrew word, so I have to think it's a different idea. Have dominion. It says radal is the Hebrew word, which means to rule, dominate, or subjugate. Let's look at that 
part here, it says, have dominion over what? Over the fish of the sea, over the fowl of the air, and over every living thing that moveth upon the earth. See, God had to tell Adam and Eve, okay, I'm going to give you rulership. Have dominion over the earth. Why? Because, well, they weren't there when he said, let us make man in our image and let him have dominion over the fish of the air and the birds of the sea. God said that to himself, but Adam and Eve hadn't learned it yet, so God had to tell them, I want you to have dominion over the earth. Rulership, governance of the world was granted to mankind from the very beginning. We have authority over the animals, the sea creatures, and the birds. Every living thing that moves on the earth, we have the governance of. And I see nowhere in the scripture where that has been taken away from us, removed from us. Even Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. We have been given dominion of the earth, stewardship of it, and we need to care for it. This includes the freedom to use the resources of the earth for our needs and prosperity. We have the freedom, according to Scripture, to use the resources of the earth, the minerals and the, the things that God created on day three. You remember, it wasn't just dirt. It was all the minerals, the gold and the iron and the beryllium and all those different things that are in the earth. God created day three. We have the freedom to use those things for our prosperity. We cannot abuse these resources, but neither are we to be ruled by them. We have been given rulership. We are not to be ruled by the world. So you can tell that to your environmentalist friends, environmentalist wackos. It's okay to be a proponent of the environment, but as long as you're not a proponent of environmentalism, the raising of the environment above mankind, you can tell your friends, wait a minute, we were given dominion over the earth at the beginning. And then we have something to behold. We've looked at the image of God. We've looked at the blessing that God imparted to mankind. And then I want to point out briefly something to behold. Look here at verse 29. God said, Behold, I have given you every herb bearing seed which is upon the face of all the earth and every tree in the which is the fruit of a tree yielding seed. To you it shall be for meat. So God said, Behold, here's your food. He said, Here is man's food. Now, I don't know, since there wasn't death, I don't suppose you could have starved to death. But God still wanted them to eat. He gave them food to eat because He wanted them to enjoy the action of eating. He gave them plants that yield seeds, that's things that you can make from plants like bread and Salsa, all kinds of yummy stuff, crackers, chips. You make that stuff from plants. So those are good for you. Thank you, Lord. Glad they are. Uh, he gave us plant yielding seeds. He gave us trees that bear fruit, that have the seed in the fruit, so like an apple tree or an orange. Um, grapes have the seed in them. Different things like that. He gave us those fruits to eat. He gave us here a picture of how their life before death came was intended to be. There would be no hunting for meat. They wouldn't kill or, you know, tan the hides or things like that. They were supposed to eat plants, fruits and vegetables, really. What people eat is important to God. 
because it speaks to the source of our life. It helps us to see the source of our life. What you eat is the life you have. Garbage in, garbage out, they say. If you put garbage in your body, you're going to have garbage come out of it. You're going to have weakness and tiredness and unhealthy, unhealthy bodies if you put garbage in your body. But this applies spiritually also. We should pay attention to the things that we are allowing our spirit to consume. Garbage in, garbage out. If you put garbage in your spirit enough times, garbage will come out. And we need to apply that to our daily lives. God pointed out what food he would give to the animals. He gave every green plant to the animals. So if it's green, you see it out there, that means that the animals are probably eating it or some form of it. At the beginning, animals were not eating each other. Now this is significant to note as we move forward in this study. I didn't want us to just ignore this part of the Bible. I don't see a great deal of spiritual significance for us at this point. I imagine we could if we meditated on it long enough. But I think there's some significance for us as we move forward. So basically, take note of the fact that God pointed out to them what they were to eat and that it did not include death of any kind or eating each other. And then look at the very last verse. Verse 31. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, again, we have this word behold. Behold, it was very good. And evening and the morning were the sixth day. Up to now, God had only been recording to us that he beheld what he had done on day, whatever it was, and behold, it was, it was good. He saw it and it was good. He saw it and it was good. He says that very, many times and then he says, in the very end, behold, it's very good. It's very good. It's beyond just being acceptable. It is perfect. Perfect. When God made the world at the beginning, he saw it and he said everything. He saw everything he'd made and it was very good. There were no faults. There were no mistakes. There was nothing, nothing out of balance. Everything that he had made was perfection in complete harmony and peace, including mankind. At the beginning, everything was created perfectly well without a single error. And you know, friends, in closing, that's what God does all the time. Everything that God does is done very well. Not just, you know, almost good, very good. God has never made a mistake. Now you think about that. Think about what that means. God has never made a mistake. Everything he does is very good. That means that when he created you and me, he did not mess up. God designed your life to be exactly the way that it is. And he did not make a mistake. Now you might say, well, wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. What about all those kids that are beat up by their dads or their moms? Or their, their, their moms and dads are, are addicted to alcohol and drugs and they have a horrible, horrible life. 
that wasn't, that was a mistake God made. Wait a second. Hang on a second. God didn't decide that sin should be in the world. That's a result of sin in the world. And God put those people in that place to bring him glory. There's things we can't understand. How are we supposed to sit here and question God who sees everything all at the same time? He knows what's right and what's wrong. He knows how to handle and take care of those children, how to bring them out of, how to redeem their situation. I don't believe, friends, you can say God has ever made a mistake. And that includes the way he's designed your life, the family he's put you in. The things that have happened in your life are not always his doing. God gets blamed for an awful lot of sin. Sin is the decision of mankind. It's something that he brought into the world. So yeah, there's sinful things and the results of sin. But you know what's awesome about God is that he redeems sin. He redeems sinful things, sinful people. And he does it perfectly. He doesn't almost halfway save you. When he sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross to redeem us from our sins, to bring deliverance from our sin, he didn't almost do it. He did it fully. That's why Jesus said it is finished. Everything got done perfectly, absolutely without error. It was very good. When God saved you, it was very good. When God gave you the the nose you have, it was very good. When God gave you the feet you have, or maybe he didn't give you feet at all, it was very good. When God created your friend or your family member with some serious physical malady, it was very good. God doesn't mess up on things, friends. He doesn't make mistakes. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he's much wiser than we are, and he sees things we don't see. We see, we go, God, that doesn't make any sense. Surely that was an error on your part. Surely you totally messed up. Surely you didn't know what you were doing when you made so-and-so, when you let Johnny Erickson Tata have that accident and just be a paraplegic for the rest of her life. Quadriplegic, I'm sorry, not para, quad, like none of her limbs work. Surely that was a mistake, Lord. When you allowed that to take place. But uh uh-uh, it wasn't. And she'll tell you it wasn't an error. God knew what he was doing. God designs things perfectly. The things that God does, friends, this is my point. The things that God does are done very well. Very good. When God decides to provide for a person to travel the world, spreading the truth of the kingdom, he does it very well. When God decides to do it, if he's the one doing it, it's done very well. He is the eternal success. If we want to seek fruitfulness in the world and success in our lives, he is it. He is the success we're to seek. If he's living my life through me, he doesn't mess up. Now, friends, this is a, this is a, big, a big idea to throw out at you at the very end here. There's a lot more involved here scripturally. But we need to remember that at the very beginning, God made everything he made without any mistake or error, with perfect peace and harmony, including human beings. That's important to note. Human beings were made without any errors or mistakes. He didn't plan for them to fail or to sin. He planned for them to succeed. 
to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it and to have dominion, to rule, to have governance in the world. That's how God created us at the beginning. And even today, everything God does is without error. God doesn't mess up anything. And that's important for us to believe and to hang on to when he doesn't make sense. From our limited perspective, he might not make sense, but he doesn't make errors. Let's remember that. Let's hang on to that. So today our lesson is about who is in the image of God. The answer is everyone. Every human being is in the image of God, whether they are yet born out of their mother's womb or not. Whether they have hands and feet, whether they're a child or an adult, whether they're an aged person or, or have mental handicaps, they're all in the image of God. And we see the blessing that God gave to mankind, the very first blessing. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. These are the lessons. These are the things God intended for mankind from the very beginning. And we learn that God does everything very well. The things that he made that first week were very good. Not just good, but very good. And he does that still today. God has never made a mistake in anything he's ever done. And if we will just learn to trust his wisdom, to know that he knows better than me, boy, we'll find a lot more peace and a lot more strength to face the struggles and trials of life. God does things very well. Let's remember that together. Pray with me now. Our Father in heaven, we are very grateful to you for making us, for creating us very well. Lord, you designed our, our life. You designed our physical appearances. You designed the family we would be born into. You designed the time of the history into which we would be born. Lord, we are thankful to you for having wisdom to do things well, for giving us such good gifts and wonderful things. We're thankful that you've created us in your image and we, help, and we, we hope that you will help us to remember that with the different people that we interact with throughout our lives, that we'll remember that they're created in God's image. That you'd help us, Lord, to remember the blessing that you gave to us at the very beginning. Help us to remember these things, Lord. Help us to remember that children are a blessing and a reward and not a burden. To remember that it's our responsibility to care for the earth, to have governance and rulership in it, to have dominion over nature. Help us to love one another, Lord. Help us to know you, to achieve true success, Lord, give us these things. We, we can't achieve them on our, on our own, and, and we need your help. We thank you for this good day and for these 
good people and all the good things you're doing in our midst and among us. We're thankful for the word of God and for the truth that you have revealed to us. Bless us, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, God bless you, friends. And